Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following is part one of a reading of the Fight Back document, Indigenous Struggle and the Fight for Socialism, Revolution, Not Reconciliation. The document can be found on our website and can be purchased in booklet form from our store on marxist.ca. This reading is performed by comrade Mike Lickers. Indigenous Struggle and the Fight for Socialism Revolution, Not Reconciliation Fight Back, October 21st, 2020 The following document is the product of over 20 years of study and participation in the fight of Indigenous peoples against Canadian capitalism. Over the years, we have learned from real-world struggle and have detailed these experiences on the www.marxist.ca website. Revolution Not Reconciliation encompasses the accumulated conclusions of the supporters of the international Marxist tendency, indigenous and non, applying Marxist theory to the movement on the ground. This process culminated in the 2019 Fight Back La Riposte Socialiste Congress, where a draft version of the document was discussed, amended, and adopted as the official position of the IMT. Here, we detail a revolutionary Marxist analysis of the origin of indigenous oppression in opposition to the liberal, reformist hypocrisy of reconciliation and the trap of identity politics and post-colonial theory, pushed by comfortable academics. The conclusions of this work have never been more timely, given the recurring explosions of indigenous struggle in 2020. Only through mass revolutionary struggle against capitalism can all the oppressed be genuinely liberated. We appeal to all to study these lessons, discuss the conclusions, and unite with us in struggle. As a defining feature of Canadian capitalism, the oppression of indigenous peoples is of prime importance for Marxists. Most people exit the public education system with little exposure to the shameful history which underpins the Canadian capitalist system, one of violence, theft, and genocide against Indigenous people, which includes First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. According to bourgeois history, Canada's relationship with the Indigenous peoples present in this land prior to European settlement is often depicted as cooperative and collaborative, while the American historical experience is portrayed as confrontational and violent. This has been used to promote a historical narrative of quote-unquote peaceful cooperation between the Canadian state and Indigenous peoples. A look at the social conditions of many Indigenous communities today presents a starkly different picture. Despite decades of promises by both conservative and liberal governments, Little has been done to improve the quality of life of Indigenous peoples on or off the reserves, or to repair the impact of generations of trauma inflicted by the state. Indigenous people are one of the most oppressed groups in Canadian society and continue to experience social maladies at rates far worse than the rest of the population. Living and social conditions on many reserves are appalling. Canada as a whole routinely ranks among the top 10 nations in the world in terms of the UN Human Development Index. However, if these indexes were applied to Indigenous people alone, Canada's position would be considerably lower, on par with many so-called Third World countries. For example, despite the fact that Canada has the world's third largest supply of fresh water, Water on many First Nation reserves is undrinkable or must be boiled before consumption. According to Indigenous Services Canada, there are currently 60 communities with long-term water advisories. This is down from 105 in 2015, 
but many more water systems on reserves are at risk of collapse. In Neskintaga, a remote fly-in reserve in northern Ontario, people have been boiling water for more than 20 years after a water treatment plant that was built in 1993 broke down. Then there's Grassy Narrows, a northern Ontario community near the Manitoba border, which has lived with the effects of mercury in local lakes and rivers, the result of a commercial dump in the 1960s that has never been cleaned up. As a result, more than 90% of residents currently display signs of mercury poisoning. Housing on many reserves is in a deplorable state due to overcrowding and disrepair. The Assembly of First Nations estimates a shortage of 85,000 units countrywide. Overcrowding is six times higher on reserve than off. Of the housing already in place on reserves, just over 41% need major repairs compared to 7% outside reserves, leaving thousands of Indigenous people living in hazardous conditions with a serious impact on health, education, etc. For example, poor housing and overcrowding is believed to be a significant contributing factor in the spread of tuberculosis, which has led Nunavut to have a TB rate 38 times the national average. Poverty and unemployment are also higher for Indigenous people both on and off reserves. According to Statistics Canada, more than 80% of reserves have a median income below the poverty rate, and the median income for Indigenous people both on and off reserves is 30% lower than the rest of the population. The median annual income for Indigenous people is just over $22,000, compared with the national average of around $35,000 for individuals in the general population. For First Nations people living off reserves, the median income was around $22,500, compared to just over $14,000 for First Nations people living on reserves. At the time of writing, the unemployment rate among Indigenous people is 13%, more than twice the rate among the non-Indigenous population. Indigenous women make up the poorest section of Canadian society. 44% of Indigenous women living off reserves live below the poverty line. The poverty rate rises to 47% amongst on-reserve women. The average annual income of an Indigenous woman is only $13,300. Poverty forces Indigenous women into situations or coping strategies that increase their vulnerability to violence, such as hitchhiking, addictions, homelessness, sex work, gang involvement, or abusive relationships. Sexism and racism in capitalist society compound this vulnerability. There is a crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada, with between 1,200 to 4,000 lost sisters in the last three decades alone. Incarceration rates for Indigenous people are severe compared to the rest of the population. Data released by Statistics Canada shows Indigenous youth made up 46% of admissions to correctional services between 2016 and 2017, while making up only 8% of the youth population. In Saskatchewan, 92% of incarcerated male youth are Indigenous, and 98% of incarcerated female youth are Indigenous. While Indigenous people make up around 4% of Canada's population, more than 23% of the inmate population in federal institutions are Indigenous people. This amounts to an incarceration rate 10 times higher than among the non-Indigenous population. Indigenous adults make up the greatest proportion of admissions to jails in Manitoba at 74%, and in Saskatchewan, 76% while Indigenous adults only make up 15% of the population in Manitoba 
and 14% in Saskatchewan. Around half of First Nations children live in poverty, but poverty rates reach as high as 62% in Manitoba and 64% in Saskatchewan. The poverty rate is 15 and 16% among non-Indigenous children in these provinces respectively. An Assembly of First Nations school survey showed that an estimated 47% of First Nations currently require a new school building. Approximately 74% of First Nations schools need major repairs related to requirements for additional space, plumbing and sewage issues, electrical, roofing, building code issues, and structure and foundation. Only 46% of First Nations schools have a fully equipped gym. Only 37% have a fully equipped playground or outdoor playing field. Only 52% have a fully equipped kitchen and only 18% of First Nations schools have a fully equipped science lab. Only 39% of First Nations schools have a fully equipped library. Only 48% of First Nations schools have fully equipped technology and only 67% report good connectivity. The bleak conditions faced by Indigenous communities and the legacy of colonialism have dire mental health implications. Suicide and self-inflicted injuries are the leading causes of death for First Nations youth and adults up to 44 years of age, according to the Public Health Agency of Canada. The overall suicide rate among the Indigenous population is double that of the total Canadian population. Among Indigenous youth, the suicide rate is five to six times higher than non-Indigenous youth. The suicide epidemic affecting First Nations communities across Canada has been a national crisis for decades but it attracted international headlines after three Indigenous communities were moved to declare a state of emergency in response to a series of deaths. In the spring of 2016, Attawapiskat First Nation Reserve in Ontario declared a state of emergency after 11 young people tried to commit suicide in one night, adding to an estimated 100 attempts made over 10 months among this community of 2,000 people. Not long after, it was revealed that six people, including a 14-year-old girl, had killed themselves over a period of three months in the Pimichikamak Cree Nation community of northern Manitoba. In the aftermath, more than 150 youths in this remote community of 6,000 were put on suicide watch. Indigenous community leaders and youth activists have long explained the cause of this epidemic to be a sense of hopelessness among the youth due to a lack of resources and opportunities on reserves, compounded by discrimination and intergenerational trauma resulting from colonial oppression. The demands of the communities living with this suicide epidemic Focus on access to social services and cultural and recreational programs, improved education and access to training and employment. Yet federal funding continues to fall short and indigenous communities across the country are left without the resources they need to address this epidemic. How can this state of affairs be explained and what are the solutions? We have to understand the root of these problems in order to fight them. Whenever we are attempting to analyze a present-day circumstance, event, or issue, we must begin from this vantage point. What are the social and historical conditions that have led to the present situation? This requires a study of the development of Canadian capitalism which was founded and built on the brutal exploitation and colonization of indigenous peoples. A study of this history also clearly shows that the continued oppression and suffering of indigenous peoples today is inherently linked to the capitalist system.
and points the way forward for emancipation through the fight for socialist transformation of society. Rich and varied cultures thrived before colonization. In what is now Canada, there had been several thousand years of human habitation, struggle, and achievement before European colonization. When the European invaders first arrived, there were more than 53 languages spoken from 11 main language families, with many variants and dialects. It is not possible to do justice to the rich variants of culture, language, and traditions of the different indigenous peoples in this text. However, there were some common and recurring features across many indigenous peoples that result from a similar organization around production and exchange. The structure of society that prevailed prior to colonization was what Friedrich Engels referred to as primitive communism. While many academics have attacked the term primitive communism on the basis that this somehow denigrates indigenous people, this is a complete misunderstanding of the term and was not in any way Engels's or Marx's intention. The original German word for this is Urkommunismus, which more correctly means the first original or primeval communism. This term denoted a stage of society in which the productive forces, and therefore the productivity of labor, are not sufficiently developed to produce a stable surplus. The prerequisite for the development of class society and the state apparatus needed to defend it. This analysis is in no way meant to disparage indigenous peoples, as every human society inevitably went through a similar phase and an honest reading of Engels would show that he spoke positively of the traditions of indigenous communities, which in general were much more egalitarian than the capitalist quote-unquote civilization we live under today. The organization of society under primitive communism is egalitarian and based on communal ownership of hunting and fishing grounds. Private property is limited to personal items. In the absence of class division, the state as a separate machinery of force for maintaining class rule does not yet exist. As Métis Marxist Howard Adams explained, Before the Europeans arrived, Indian society was governed without police, without kings and governors, without judges, and without a ruling class. Disputes were settled by the council, among the people concerned. Indian government was neither extensive nor complicated, and the positions were created only to ensure effective administration for a given period of time. There were no poor and needy in comparison with other members, and likewise no wealthy and privileged. As a result, on the prairies there were no classes and no class antagonisms among people. Members of the community were bound to give each other assistance, protection, and support, not only as part of economics, but as part of their religion as well. Sharing was a natural characteristic of their way of life. Each member recognized his or her responsibility for contributing to the tribe's welfare when required, and individual profit-making was unknown. Everyone was equal in rights and benefits. These societies also tended to be matrilineal, with the family being traced through the female bloodline, and women occupying the head of the household and having powers to elect and dispose of war chiefs. However, it is important not to view indigenous peoples as a monolithic block. As Engels explained in The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State, primitive communist societies are not static and pass through various stages of development. Among the indigenous peoples of the Americas, there was a wide variance in terms of socioeconomic development and ways of life. For example, the Haudenosaunee, people of the Longhouse, Iroquois, or Six Nations, of the Great Lakes region were agriculturalists, 
growing beans, squash, pumpkin, corn, and sunflowers. Instead of the temporary encampments characteristic of hunter-gatherer societies, they built large villages with permanent longhouses. The cultivation of crops began to make possible for the first time the production and storage of a surplus of foodstuffs. This in turn led to trade by barter, and a wide trading network had developed prior to the European invasion. Various indigenous peoples began to specialize in the development and trade of certain resources or products, including agriculture, hunting and the skin and fur trades, fishing, whaling, and seal hunting, canoe production, bow production, tobacco farming, horse trading, iron and metal extraction, etc. There is ample evidence of widespread trade throughout the Americas prior to the arrival of Europeans. Corn spread throughout the Americas via the complex Mayan trade network. Pipestone was traded extensively, and Pipestone-smoking artifacts have been found throughout the United States and Canada. The only pre-contact pipestone quarry was located in Minnesota. There is extensive evidence of widespread trading between indigenous peoples on the west coast of North America. Trade in blankets, belts, skins, snowshoes, fish, baskets, paint, knives, iron and metals, and horses. Along with these increasingly complex productive relations arose more complex social organization. Around the year 1570, the five Haudenosaunee tribes, Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Oneida, and Mohawk, united in a confederacy that has endured for hundreds of years. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy, also known as the Iroquois Confederacy or eventually the Six Nations, in 1720, these five were joined by a sixth tribe, the Tuscarora. The purpose of the Confederacy was to renounce mutual warfare, while presenting a united front against outside raiders. The tribal military organization of the Haudenosaunee foreshadowed the eventual appearance, with the coming of class society, of the state. But as yet, the state did not exist. There was no separate, permanent machinery of bodies of armed men and prisons, characteristic of class society. Rather, the war chiefs held office only for the duration of warfare. The military force was the armed community instead of a separate standing army. Communal property also still prevailed. Only in one area at the time of the arrival of Europeans was this communistic society beginning to break up and give way to a class social structure based on slavery on the Pacific coast. This was due to the extraordinary level of productivity of the main economic activity for Pacific indigenous peoples, fishing. Production of a regular surplus means that it is possible for part of the community to live in idleness at the expense of the labor of others. Prisoners taken in war, instead of being adopted into the tribe as equals, where all had to work, as was the case with the Haudenosaunee, now became slaves. Objects of property, and the chieftains, the men of property, became slave owners. Along with this shift toward private property and class stratification came the shift towards a patrilineal and patriarchal organization of society. Thus, it is very clear that while communistic hunter-gathering was a prevailing form of economic and social organization prior to colonization, this was not the case everywhere. On the contrary, different indigenous peoples from coast to coast were innovating, evolving, developing, and seeing profound changes to their social and economic structures. This natural and vibrant evolution was cut short by European conquest, which disrupted the development of communal tribal society and sought to violently impose capitalist social relations. The Rise of European Capitalism as the Driving Force for Colonization In the Communist Manifesto, 
Marx and Engels explained that the colonization of the Americas was integral to the development of capitalism through the forging of the world market. This was essential in capitalism replacing feudalism as the dominant mode of production and exchange in Europe. We can trace the beginning of colonization of what is now Canada to 1497 and onward, when there were several small expeditions from England, Portugal, and France to the East Coast. These nations were challenging the dominance of Spain, which had already begun colonizing the Caribbean in 1492, before going on to reap a harvest of gold and silver through the plunder and enslavement of the indigenous people of what are now Peru and Mexico in the early 16th century. These expeditions were mainly backed by rich merchants, part of the ascendant capitalist class looking for goods to sell in European markets. This was the true driving force behind colonization. The legacy of European colonization is truly horrific. It is estimated that between 1492 and 1900, there were approximately 175 million excess indigenous deaths in the Americas, with a 95% reduction in population during that period. Historian David Stannard at the University of Hawaii has called this mass death of indigenous peoples the worst human holocaust that the world had ever witnessed. And it is hard to argue with him. This is another aspect of what Marx was referring to when he said that capitalism comes into the world dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. Theories of racial inferiority were developed during the formative period of capitalism in order to justify colonization. The church played a fundamental role in this process due to the divine authority which they were seen to have. Armies of pulpit propagandists were enlisted by stock companies to justify the merciless exploitation they would inflict upon indigenous peoples. Their use of clergy for this purpose went as high as the Pope, who provided the legal and ideological framework for colonization through the doctrine of discovery in the 15th century. The doctrine asserted that any lands not inhabited by Christians were terra nullius, or nobody's land, and were therefore available to be discovered and claimed. The French were the first to push inland and establish several outposts and settlements along the St. Lawrence River Valley from the 1600s onwards, marking the beginning of the French fur trade empire. The Company of New France was chartered in 1627 and given a monopoly by the French crown to manage the fur trade in the colonies of New France, in return for being responsible for settling new French Catholics in the colonies. While the Spanish and Portuguese built their empires to the south on conquest and slavery, and the British colonists massacred indigenous peoples to take their land, the French were never powerful enough to take the same approach in North America. Instead, French colonial policy was based on making alliances with indigenous tribes they came into contact with. However, their colonial practices were no more virtuous than other European colonizers. The French held an extremely paternalistic and derogatory view of the First Nations they made alliances with, viewing them as savages that needed to be civilized. The relationship between the First Nations fur trappers and the French traders was also one of exploitation, with the indigenous locals being the ones to trek for miles and hunt animals for fur while the traders reaped the profits. The French also used a divide-and-rule tactic and fanned the flames of fratricidal wars to make those they traded with even more dependent on them. While some of these conflicts were long-standing, European intervention transformed what had once been sporadic local contest waged with bows and arrows into bloodier wars of mutual extermination with firearms which extended over vast territories. The scope of these wars was directly connected to the manipulation 
and forced integration of indigenous peoples into the developing capitalist world market. As indigenous tribes became more and more dependent on fur trading with the colonial powers, conflicts over hunting and trapping grounds developed into deadly wars with entire tribes being wiped out. The series of military conflicts that lasted for decades throughout the 17th century are popularly known as the Beaver Wars, which in and of itself demonstrates that this was essentially a battle over very profitable capitalist markets. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy refused to be made into a dependent ally of the French and were at war with them and their First Nations allies, the Huron-Wendat and the Algonquin, between 1640 and the 1660s. At one point, the Haudenosaunee even seized Montreal and several key French outposts. While this resistance was eventually crushed by direct military intervention from France, it served to significantly weaken the colony. Unable to deal with ongoing conflicts with local First Nations, as well as discontent from French settlers, the Company of New France surrendered its charter in 1663, making way for the British Hudson's Bay Company to become the dominant force in the fur trade. Another factor that weakened the French colony was continual war between Britain and France between the 1680s and 1750s, always pitting the colonies against each other. By the mid-18th century, Britain had laid the foundation for her industrial revolution and was emerging as a world capitalist power, while France remained fettered by feudal relations. This disparity was reflected in the colonies with the relatively low level of economic development in New France compared to the British colonies. After the Seven Years' War from 1756 to 1763, the British took over areas previously administered by the French. While the French had strategically made deals with indigenous peoples in order to form alliances, the British approach was to treat them as a conquered people. This attitude was most graphically illustrated under British General Geoffrey Amherst, who thought that with the French out of the way, indigenous peoples would be forced to accept British rule. Amherst took a hostile stance to indigenous peoples, and especially after the Cherokee rebelled against the British in 1758, he started to restrict access to firearms and gunpowder for indigenous people. In February 1761, in what is known as Amherst's Decree, he ended the tradition of giving gunpowder and shot to chiefs as a diplomatic gesture of goodwill. This contributed to deteriorating relations between the indigenous peoples and the British. The British also refused to withdraw from areas west of the Alleghany Mountains, essentially occupying indigenous land in the Ohio and Alleghany Valleys. British generals were known for treating indigenous people no differently than wild animals, following the lead given by Amherst. This enraged indigenous peoples who banded together, waging a heroic war against the British colonial forces in 1763. More than a dozen indigenous tribes, comprising thousands of warriors, united to drive the British colonizers from their land. This war became known as Pontiac's War, after the influential Odawa warrior, who was one of the principal leaders of the indigenous forces. This loose alliance of tribes destroyed eight forts, killing thousands of British soldiers and colonists and driving thousands more from their land. While official accounts invariably speak of the brutality of the indigenous peoples, the moral hypocrisy of the British colonizers is clear. Indigenous people were fighting back against an alien colonial force that was seeking to exterminate and replace them using the most underhanded methods. The latter's brutal outlook was most graphically illustrated by Geoffrey Amherst himself, who argued for biological warfare, saying, could it not be contrived to send the smallpox among the disaffected tribes of Indians? 
We must, on this occasion, use every stratagem in our power to reduce them. While the indigenous tribes did not succeed in expelling the British, one of the results of this war was the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which stated that the Crown must negotiate and sign treaties with indigenous people before land could be ceded to the colonies. This proclamation explicitly recognized that indigenous title to the land existed and that all lands would be considered indigenous lands until ceded by treaty. However, the purpose of the proclamation was not to protect indigenous title or rights. It was more of a cynical maneuver with the aim of restricting the growing power and independence of the American colonies and was designed to guarantee the dominance of the British crown by maintaining the state monopoly of ownership over the land. According to the proclamation, only the crown could acquire land from indigenous peoples. The settlers were explicitly forbidden from claiming indigenous land directly. It first had to be acquired by the crown and then sold to the settlers. The whole idea was that the crown was asserting its right to profit from and be the dominant force in the colonization and destruction of indigenous peoples. With France out of the way, the British crown focused its efforts on curtailing the power of the nascent colonial bourgeoisie. This intensified conflicts, which ultimately led to the American Revolution in 1765. Once again, the fate of indigenous peoples was considered small change by the big powers, with each side making empty promises to enlist indigenous allies. The British Crown went on to break a number of promises to First Nations people and settled or sold unceded territories. For example, in return for fighting with the British against the Americans in the Revolutionary War, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy was promised the land lying six miles on each side of the Grand River, which empties into Lake Erie. However, land grants were not upheld in the newly established Assembly of Upper Canada, and the indigenous people of the Confederacy ended up with one-fifteenth of the land previously promised. The settlement of Upper Canada was then carried out through a massive eviction of the First Nation people dwelling there. With the Americans decisively defeating the British in the early 1780s, the American bourgeoisie adopted an even more aggressive policy than the British, expanding westward and disregarding any previous agreements the British had made with indigenous peoples. Once again, indigenous tribes united in what is known as the Northwest Indian War, fighting bravely and defeating the invaders on multiple occasions, most notably at the Battle of Wabash. An indigenous army of Miami, Shawnee, Potawatomi, and Lenape banded together and delivered the most decisive defeat ever suffered by the American military. They nearly wiped out the entire American force of 1,000 soldiers while suffering only minimal losses. Indigenous peoples fought bravely against the colonizers on many occasions. In spite of this heroism, they were doomed to defeat in the long run. This is because, at the end of the day, all other things being equal, the socio-economic system with the higher productivity of labor will be victorious in any armed conflict. The American Revolution which laid the political basis for unfettered capitalism based on industrial production, unleashed a development of the productive forces almost unparalleled in history. Confronted with this, the relatively underdeveloped economy of the indigenous peoples, which had already been significantly distorted and weakened via the fur trade, did not stand a chance. In spite of the heroism and the desire to fight back, Indigenous chiefs obviously knew this fundamental truth as they forged alliances with the British against the Americans, in spite of the horrible track record of the British Empire. During the War of 1812, First Nations support for the British against the Americans was again rewarded with betrayal. 
more than 10,000 First Nations warriors from the Great Lakes region and the St. Lawrence Valley participated in nearly every major battle. In exchange, Britain promised the Shawnee chief Tecumseh a neutral indigenous territory between the United States of America and British North America. But once the war was over, the promise was conveniently forgotten. After fighting in the war, First Nations were denied any recognition as parties to the peace, or as independent and sovereign peoples. More Thefts and Betrayals The birth of Canada in 1867 coincided with a historic theft of Indigenous territory. Having gained legal sovereignty over the vast west and north, encompassing 8 million square kilometers. The Hudson's Bay Company later sold these territories to the newly confederated Canadian state for 300,000 pounds, plus permission to retain 50,000 acres around the various trading posts. Unsurprisingly, the indigenous people never saw a penny of this wealth and were never consulted. Canada's first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, commented that the people living on this land were handed over like a flock of sheep. The company had simply sold the crown stolen, unceded land. The Hudson's Bay Company had made 20 million pounds in the fur trade, worth approximately 1.5 billion pounds today. A large portion of this was sent back to England and invested in industry there, providing much of the basis for spurring on the Industrial Revolution, which made Britain a major world capitalist power. However, a significant amount of this wealth would be reinvested in the other colonies and Canada as well. The HBC would also use alcohol in the oppression and exploitation of indigenous peoples in Canada. Alcohol was a high-profit item that was often consumed at trading outposts. This ultimately limited the purchasing power of indigenous people and had the effect of undermining traditional community relations. Indigenous chiefs and elders resisted this detrimental trade, while HBC protected its monopoly on alcohol sales and profited massively. Alcohol was used to keep indigenous people dependent. HBC traders often showed up with quantities of alcohol at peak hunting times in order to literally steal furs from intoxicated indigenous traders. The use of alcohol in the fur trade profited HBC greatly, with social consequences which are still felt to this day. With enormous profits from the fur trade and alcohol monopolies, as well as the sale of stolen land, the Hudson's Bay Company was essential in the formation of the Canadian bourgeoisie and capitalism in Canada. In fact, HBC was the starting point for the development of the big bourgeoisie in Canada in terms of land development, the railways, shipping, and banking. Thus, it is clear that the exploitation of indigenous peoples was key to the development of Canadian capitalism and provided the necessary basis for the formation of the nascent Canadian bourgeoisie. Canadian Capitalism built on the subjugation of indigenous peoples. By the time of Confederation in 1867, the disappearance of fur-bearing animals and the development of industry and trade had brought about the end of the fur trade, except for some parts in the north. This led the new capitalist class to direct more attention to other resources in Canada and to establishing a home market. Capitalism in Canada now required land development to promote capitalist agricultural production and the development of industry and trade around the extraction of raw resources. These economic demands created the need for a pool of cheap labor, something the Canadian bourgeoisie generally lacked. While the Hudson's Bay Company had previously benefited from keeping indigenous people nomadic and engaged in hunting and trapping, rather than pushing them onto the reserves. That policy now changed. 
Treaties were established between First Nations and the Crown to clear land for capitalist development and exploitation. Practices aimed at, quote, civilizing the Indian, unquote, were established to break traditional forms of governance and communal property. The economic base of indigenous society had been effectively eradicated through capitalist exploitation. For example, bison herds were all but gone by the 1880s, as the skins and hides of the bison were perfect for use as belts and other parts of the machinery used in the developing industry in central Canada and the east coast of the United States. Now the cultural elements of indigenous society had to be destroyed as well. This is because the primitive communist mode of production and its corresponding family form were incompatible with the development of capitalism and had to be destroyed from the perspective of the capitalist class. While indigenous peoples viewed the land and natural resources as collective property, their very habitance on it was a barrier to capitalist development. Furthermore, the capitalist class required a pool of pliable laborers, disconnected from their traditional land and collective means of survival such as hunting, who could be exploited for profit. They also needed to destroy indigenous culture and ways of life in order to assimilate indigenous peoples into capitalist society and minimize any resistance. The acquisition and theft of indigenous lands played an essential role in the primitive accumulation of capital in North America. Beginning in 1828, a series of government reports, including the Darling Report, targeted agriculture as a means of forcing indigenous people down the road to, quote, civilization, unquote. The idea was to confine indigenous people on reserves, where they would learn to cultivate the land, become, quote, good Christians, unquote, with the selfless help of the church, discover the virtues of individualism, and eventually become a malleable workforce. In this way, they would establish permanent settlements, abandon hunting, and develop subsistence agriculture, thereby ceasing to be an obstacle to the development of the land. As part of this policy, indigenous peoples, particularly in the West, were confined to reserves where they were forced to cultivate the land. However, the land set aside for them to farm remained the property of the crown and was often of poor quality. Nevertheless, many indigenous farmers had some success in the 1880s, thanks to new farming techniques and the collective organization of the work. For example, in 1890, two farms on reserves in Prince Albert and Regina won the first prize in a wheat competition. Faced with this prosperity, and under the pressure of white farmers who complained about competition from indigenous farmers, the federal government adopted a series of measures to limit the development of indigenous agriculture. Officially, these measures were taken on the pretext that indigenous farmers should start by learning subsistence farming before moving on to commercial farming. In 1881, the sale of agricultural products by indigenous people was restricted. Hayter Reed, the deputy superintendent of Indian Affairs, was responsible for the implementation of the peasant farming policy in 1889, which hindered developing indigenous agriculture. Reed was of the opinion that it was better for indigenous people to learn to cultivate small plots of land than to engage in larger-scale commercial agriculture. Accordingly, this would restrict farming land and eliminate the need for labor-saving machinery. Reed argued that the peasants of other countries had farmed successfully for centuries with ancient hand tools, and he thought that indigenous people had to learn to use these tools and thereby advance through the historical stages of agricultural technique before being allowed to compete with the white farmers. He forbade indigenous people from purchasing agricultural machinery and forced indigenous farmers to use archaic hand tools. With the implementation of the peasant farming policy, indigenous farmland was divided and allocated individually into 40-acre parcels of land to encourage individualism and private property and to undermine the collective spirit and sense of community. 
once the parcels were distributed, the quote-unquote unused lands were then sold, thereby further reducing the size of the reserves. Unfair Treaties and the Indian Act Treaties played an important role in preparing the land and indigenous people for capitalist development. The legal basis for treaties was twofold. The British North America Act, which gave the Crown authority to deal with indigenous people, and the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which stated that all legal title to land rests with the indigenous peoples unless formally extinguished by a treaty. This proclamation is the legal basis for the indigenous land title claims which indigenous people use in their struggle to the present day. However, as previously mentioned, the Royal Proclamation was never intended to defend indigenous land rights, but to prevent the colonies from acquiring land directly in order to ensure a monopoly on land for the British Crown. Much manipulation and misrepresentation was used during treaty negotiations to defraud indigenous people from large swaths of their land and push them onto non-arable and lower quality land. The purpose of the treaties for the Canadian state was expressed by Indian Commissioner J. Provencher in 1873. Quote, there are two modes wherein the government may treat the Indian nations who inhabit this territory. Treaties may be made with them simply with a view to the extinction of their rights, by agreeing to pay them a sum, and afterwards abandon them to themselves. On the other side, they may be instructed, civilized, and led to a mode of life more in conformity with the new position of this country." Unquote. First Nations peoples entered such unequal agreements because they were under great pressure. The death toll from smallpox and other epidemic diseases was very high. Several animals that were traditionally hunted for survival had gone extinct, and the indigenous people in the United States had been brutally massacred. On the prairies, railroad surveyors were at work laying out the right-of-way for the Canadian Pacific Railway, and the state was preparing to forcefully clear First Nations and Métis people in the way of the development. In 1871, after Canada assumed control in Red River, the Crown opened negotiations with First Nations for rights to the land, as per the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which was included in the Articles of Confederation. Known as the quote-unquote numbered treaties, or the, quote, post-Confederation treaties, unquote. This era of treaty-making ended in 1921 and began on the prairies. It also included parts of the North and some regions in Western Ontario. While First Nations in some regions of BC were included, this was not the case for the majority in the province, who were not part of this treaty process. During the first period of negotiations between 1871 and 1877, some First Nations negotiated and won important concessions based on the bitter experience of people who had signed treaties earlier in the process. For example, the terms of Treaty 6 included provisions that had not been negotiated in Treaties 1 to 5, such as the presence of a medicine chest to be kept at the house of the Indian agent on reserves, measures to protect from famine and disease, more agricultural supplies, and the provision of education on the reserve. That the chiefs signed the treaties should not be taken as an indication they were happy to do so, and serious protests by chiefs like Poundmaker at the signing of Treaty 6 were made. Rather, to the First Nations whose leaders agreed to the treaties, they were seen as a matter of necessity, resulting from the loss of the economic foundation of their way of life. By the time of Confederation, all the basic features of Canadian policy towards Indigenous peoples were in place, but they were scattered over a series of statutes and lacked a consolidated administrative structure. With Confederation, control over all quote-unquote Indian affairs was assumed by the federal government. 
Statutory consolidation occurred with the Indian Act of 1876. The Canadian bourgeoisie's plan to convert indigenous people on reserves into a cheap source of labor and source of agricultural surplus had largely failed up to this point. The Indian Act was an attempt to solve this problem and put indigenous people on reserves under a system of land tenure to ensure control of on-reserve agricultural production. The state had total control of the land, and hence the lives of people living on reserves. The state decided everything from what crops to sow to harvest time. It provided all the equipment and determined sales and prices. The income from sales went to the Department of Indian Affairs, supposedly to be spent on improvements on the reserves. In practice, Indian Affairs was a backwater department with little supervision from Ottawa. According to author Heather Robertson, millions of dollars were misappropriated and misused in this way. Thus, in a certain sense, the indigenous people on reserves became agricultural laborers who worked for Indian Affairs. In this way, the reserves indeed became a source of cheap labor, as indigenous people on reserves became employees of the state. The Indian Act gave the new Canadian state sweeping powers over all aspects of the lives of First Nations people, including the legal authority to replace traditional forms of indigenous governance, to forcibly relocate reserve land, to dictate criteria for Indian status, and to ban spiritual and cultural practices. In place of traditional forms of governance, the band council system was imposed. The reserve and residential school systems were also introduced under the Act, which gave the federal government the power to expropriate reserve areas supposedly for the development of infrastructure and other public works. The Indian Act forbade First Nations people from speaking their language and practicing their traditional religions. It forbade First Nations people from appearing in public in traditional dress and banned the potlatch in British Columbia and the Sundance in Alberta. The aim was to break up traditional ways of life to turn Indigenous people into a capitalist workforce, as well as to clear land for capitalist development, such as the Canadian Pacific Railway. The intent of this act, which remains in place today, having been amended several times but retaining its original purpose, was to subjugate and forcibly assimilate indigenous people into bourgeois society in order to remove them as a barrier to the development of the land, resources, and capitalism in general. The whole idea behind the act was to try to force indigenous people to renounce their Indian status and assimilate into bourgeois society. In the time-honored tradition of bureaucratic doublespeak, this process of forced assimilation was legally referred to as, quote-unquote, enfranchisement. Under the Act, a whole series of measures were adopted to this end, including provisions to destroy the matrilineal nature of many First Nations cultures. Other measures were designed to enforce, quote, enfranchisement, unquote. For example, any First Nations people admitted to a university were forced to renounce their status. The Act also contained a series of political measures designed to politically control Indigenous peoples. The Act forbade the formation of political organizations by First Nations people and denied them the right to vote. Until 1960, First Nations people could vote in federal elections only if they renounced their status. The Act prohibited anyone, both First Nation and non-First Nation people, from raising funds for First Nations legal claims without a special license from the Superintendent General of Indian Affairs. This move was designed to prevent First Nations from pursuing land claims. From 1885 until the 1940s, a pass system was in place to control the movements of First Nations people and keep them on reserves. First Nations people living on reserves were forced to obtain permission in writing 
from an Indian agent if they wanted to leave the reserve. If caught off reserves without one of these passes, they were either incarcerated or forcibly returned to the reserve. This policy was put in place with the outbreak of the Northwest Rebellion and was designed to prevent the spreading of insurrection. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.